Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's hard for me to believe, but it's been about a decade since I graduated from seminary back in December 2012, half a year early, perhaps because I'm an overachiever, or maybe my wife would probably say because I'm always trying to get to the next thing too quickly. And I graduated back then and became a deacon in January of 2013 and have been out of seminary for about 10 years. And unfortunately, some of the things I learned there I've forgotten. Sadly, most of my biblical Hebrew is gone. Uh, but there are some things about my time in Ambridge, Pennsylvania that I still remember. And the thing that perhaps I remember the most was the CPE class that I had to do. Now, if you're wondering what CPE is, it's clinical pastoral education. 400 hours that you do in one year, I did it in my middle year, visiting people who are sick and dying, people on hospice. I spent my time driving all over Pittsburgh, visiting people in their homes, visiting people in hospice facilities, and did that. And then on Thursday nights, we would gather, myself, uh, a couple of other seminarians, a Lutheran pastor, a hospice chaplain, and a Greek Orthodox priest who was our mentor, a guy called Ed, and we would discuss what was going on during those visits. Well, there are numerous memories I have from that time. I observed my first Hindu chanting when I was shadowing one chaplain as he chanted with one of his patients. There was a time I entered into a home and immediately trod in dog poop in the middle of the carpets. There was a time I entered into the home and discovered I was in the middle of a heated argument between a dying mother and her son. Uh, there was a time, of course, sad, really sad times where I was with a husband and um, his wife's parents-in-law as this young mother of two was dying of cancer in her 20s. That was particularly sad. All kinds of things that I went through, but one of the ones I remember the most was this. I was driving out one Friday to go to my visits, and I get a call from one of the women I'm supposed to be visiting in McKeesport, particularly rundown part of Pittsburgh. And the woman says to me, she says, oh, she says, chaplain. I said, yes, yes. Said, I need some cigarettes. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you get me a packet of cigarettes? Now, I'm immediately, morally, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how can I, as a Christian chaplain, buy cigarettes for a dying woman? A woman dying of, guess what, cancer, okay? And I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, she said, no, I need cigarettes. I said, like, well, okay, well, what do you need? And she told me the brand. I didn't recognize that. I'm not a smoker. I've smoked some cigars in my life. No cigarettes. And uh, she told me the brand. I went, okay, I'll go ask. So I drive into a gas station. I go to buy this brand of cigarettes. And the guy looks at me and says, oh, what kind of brand? And I clearly had misheard it, and I thought this huge relief went over me. I thought, I don't have to buy cigarettes for a woman dying of cancer, praise God. And so I drove to the home, and I got there, and the woman said, well, where's my cigarettes? And I said, well, unfortunately, I tried to buy them, they didn't have any. She said, what did you try to buy? I said, well, this brand. She said, that's not the name. She said, it's this brand. Don't worry, there's a corner store just down the road. You can go buy them there. I'm thinking, ah. Oh. So I get in my car, I drive down to the corner store to buy the cigarettes, and I come back, and as I pull into her driveway, there's uh, an ambulance there, and a, another car as well, and I, I walk into the house, and lo and behold, the nurse is there who's come to change the oxygen tanks. Now, if you can imagine, I've got cigarettes. <laughs> Shouldn't really be smoking around oxygen tanks, but of course, I have to go up to them and say, well, here are your cigarettes in front of the nurse. Now, as you can imagine, I never forgot that story. <laughs> the moral dilemma, everything that went on in the midst of that. And it was hard for me. And the woman was a woman of very little faith. Um, and she died a few weeks later. 
And what I learned from that time as I drove away from my visits each Friday, most of all, was that a lot of these people had spent their lives chasing after all the wrong things. And they got to their dying days and they were still seeking after those things. They, had, they still, even in the midst of a chaplain, didn't necessarily want to turn to the Lord. It was incredibly hard. And even as they shared incredibly personal things, and they might cry with me, they might shout, they might sit in silence, they might laugh. We had all these incredible moments. I would still drive away from those visits with this sense that their biggest problem was not typically their physical condition and the fact that they were dying. It was their spiritual condition, and they still had no idea that they were dying spiritually even as they were dying physically. Well, it reminded me of a scene of one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, it's up there with, for me, Schindler's List, Dead Poet Society, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, you name it. But this one is called The Shawshank Redemption. Maybe you've seen it. And in the movie, if you've not seen it, I encourage you to watch it. It's a very moving movie. Um, one of the guys who's been in, has been imprisoned, he's played by Tim Robbins, his character, and he's been wrongfully imprisoned. He, he got wrongfully accused and imprisoned. And in jail, he's met a guy played by Morgan Freeman. And they're sitting in the jail. And Tim Robbins' character is already plotting how he's going to escape um, from jail. He's, he's plotting for the life beyond jail. He's not willing to just spend the rest of his days there. And as they're talking together, he turns to Freeman's character and he says these powerful words. He says to him, you either get busy living or you get busy dying. You either get busy living or you get busy dying. Now, what it means to live or to die is different to different people. But in terms of scripture, what it says there, to truly live, to live life to the full, is to follow Jesus wherever he, wherever he leads. Wherever he leads. This is what it means to truly live life, and also in the next life as well. We have to say to God, thy will be done, and spend our lives seeking him if we want to be busy living. Now today we're going to look at what God has to say to us about this through one passage in particular. It's one of those weeks in the lectionary, the readings that are set for us, where it's really hard to pick one passage. We have the incredible story of Lazarus, don't we? I mean, what an amazing story. I could have preached on that for about six hours. I'll spare you that. We have the incredible passage from Romans where Paul talks about the wages of sin being death. I could have preached on that for three hours. But instead I'm going to give you 20 minutes on Ezekiel 37, knowing that you all are clearly Ezekiel scholars, so I won't need to do much background, right, uh, on this passage. You already grasp that this is one of the most interesting prophecies in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37. Now, don't worry, it's okay. I spent time in seminary studying under one of the foremost Ezekiel scholars, a lady called Dr. Erica Moore, who was a brilliant academic and teacher, recently retired, and while to my shame, I may have forgotten much of the Hebrew she taught me. Yes, she was the one who taught me Hebrew. Please don't tell her if you run into her. <laughs> she always asks students when she meets them again, how is your Hebrew? <laughs> <laughs> so I try and avoid her. Um, <laughs> I think the last time I saw her was about 10 years ago. <laughs> well, I haven't forgotten what I learned in Ezekiel. So here's the key things I learned. Ezekiel is a guy who's sent to prophesy to the Israelites, okay? And he's prophesying to them at the turn of about the 6th century, 600 years before Jesus. But he's living in exile in Babylon, which is hundreds of miles away, because Nebuchadnezzar has taken thousands of the top people from Jerusalem to be in Babylon after he defeats the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, in 597 BC. And they've actually ended up destroying Jerusalem and the temple as well. Now, these elites, though, are still hoping the exile will be brief. 
and that possibly if they can be helped by Egypt in the south, another one of the world powers at that time, that they might actually be able to be set free and to come back to Jerusalem and reclaim their positions of wealth and power. And they're, they're really living under a, an illusion that Jerusalem can't be and won't be destroyed. Ezekiel, however, knows otherwise, and he has this series of visions and so on, and he announces over and over against them that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Yes, the possibility of avoiding God's judgment is long gone. But Ezekiel is ignored by the Israelites. As you can imagine, they just don't want to believe him. However, he's vindicated when a man escapes from Jerusalem, he comes to Babylon, and he tells them all the terrible news of what's happened, that Jerusalem has, in fact, been destroyed. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what this must have felt like for these people. It must have been a bit like when people first heard on the radio the news that Pearl Harbor had been attacked by the Japanese. Or perhaps for some of you who were alive at the time, um, it may have been like turning on the television in 2001 when the terrorist attacks happened on 9-11. This terrible sense of how could this ever happen? And that must have been the mood that they were experiencing at the time. The world that they know has changed forever. It's changed forever. Their home city, their country, their temple has been destroyed and they're in captivity miles and miles away from their homeland and their hope of a swift return is gone. Well, in the midst of this situation of hopelessness, we have our reading for today. Just turn to our passage if you want to follow along. It's Ezekiel 37. And God gives Ezekiel a new vision. It's called the vision of the valley of dry bones. The vision of the valley of dry bones. And the first part gives us the vision, and then we get the interpretation later on. And we discover that this vision is actually a metaphor for the relationship of Israel with God. And in verse 1, we read that the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord, which means that God's power filled Ezekiel. And so then he's able to have this vision the Lord wants him to have. And in this vision, the Spirit of the Lord transports Ezekiel to a large flat valley or plain. Now, where this valley is, we're not entirely sure. Um, I've been to a place much like this in Israel, as some of you have as well. It's a place called Megiddo. Maybe it's there, but really I think this is purely a figurative uh, place. It's really just symbolizing a place of separation from the Lord, a vast, barren place. And it's the place where the Israelites have ended up due to their disobedience of God. And in this place of disobedience, they've died a spiritual death. Well, picture in your mind, this valley, this vast valley, is littered with bones. And these corpses have been left exposed to the elements and to animals, and they're rotting away, they're unburied. These, these bones are scattered around. Now, I don't know if you like Ken Burns documentaries, but I've watched a bunch in my time, and one that I actually own is the Civil War one. And this picture, this vision, reminds me a bit of one of those tragic old Civil War photos where you see, after a battle, all these bodies strewn over, over the ground of the battlefield. It's a very tragic picture. Well, the difference here is that the bodies in this vision, they won't ever get a burial. They're just dry bones, dry bones out there. And that's something that would have been completely degrading in Near Eastern culture, to not have received a burial, much as it would be today, I believe. So the Jewish hearers of the vision, though, would have realized that they're actually under a curse from God. It's this terrible thing to hear. They realize, oh, our disobedience 
has led to God cursing us. It's probably a bit like the alcoholic who finally realizes their life can get no worse. They have hit rock bottom. And yet, as Ezekiel shows, there's hope. God hasn't abandoned them. In verses 4 through 10, we hear God tell Ezekiel to prophesy over these bones so they might live. So Ezekiel does this, and there's this incredible rattling sound, isn't there? As these bones, they come together, and the bones are covered with sinews and tendons, and then there's flesh and skin covers them, and yet the bodies are still dead, we discover. No, it's not until verse 10, not until God's breath, his ruach, as the Hebrew says, also meaning wind or spirit, enters the body and they're finally alive. It's a really powerful image of God's power at work. And it's intentionally reminiscent of another verse in Scripture. Perhaps you remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God creates man. And what does he say? Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. His ruach entered into him and he became alive. God's telling his people, Israel, that he's not simply going to fix them, he's going to recreate them. It's like brand 2.0 or 3.0, a better version in the sense. In his justice, he has allowed them to experience death, and they deserve this for their disobedience. But the good news is that his justice is restorative. It's not retributive. It's restorative, not retributive. And because of his mercy, God's forming a people for himself, which, in essence, is the message of all the prophets in the Old Testament, that the Israelites, they cannot save themselves as they try to over and over again. And no other country can save them either. No, they need to repent and return to the Lord. Well, it's interesting that in the final section of our passage, verses 12 and 14, the scene actually switches from this plain to a cemetery. And it's as if to reinforce this image of deadness that we are discovering. But the good news is that God's going to open up these graves. He's actually going to open them up as we see Jesus do with Lazarus in our gospel reading. He's going to bring them back to their land and restore their nation. Now, some people, including many of the early church fathers, use this passage as a text to support the idea of a physical resurrection. And yes, as our gospel story about Lazarus shows, resurrection of the dead is possible. And there will be a resurrection of the dead one day. But this misses the point of the passage. The passage is metaphorical. Remember, this is a vision, and its point is to speak to the living, people like you and people like me, to give them hope, to give us hope, and to make us aware that we are spiritually dead apart from God. He's telling the Israelites that they've been busy dying, not busy living. That being said, though, there's certainly something about this passage that points beyond its original hearers, as I just suggested. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is for all people for all time, for you and me and for all the many people around us. It deals with the issue of people lying dead in their sins, people lying in their graves, if you will, unable to save themselves. But as Jesus said in our gospel reading, he is the resurrection and the life. In him and through him, God has chosen to act. He comes to us and breathes life into all who will receive him. There must be repentance, but it will follow the work of the Spirit, not precede it. You see, the Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, as we'll say in the Nicene Creed immediately after our sermon. 
The problem, though, isn't that we're empty vessels waiting to be filled by the Spirit. No, much like the Israelites, the problem is that we've filled ourselves with all kinds of sinful things already, things not of God. D.L. Moody once said this, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. I wonder what you've let your heart be filled with that might push out the Holy Spirit. You know, that same professor of mine, Dr. Erica Moore, used to always quote John Calvin, who would call our hearts idol-making factories. Our hearts are constantly making idols for ourselves. And Calvin's right. Our hearts have a tendency to make an idol out of anything. We can do it out of even good things. Our relationships, our families, our careers, our retirements, the pursuit of happiness or entertainment, even helping others can become an idol. And these are things that leave us spiritually dead when they're done apart from God. The good news, though, is that if in all humility we are willing to cast down our idols and confess our sin to God, then he will enter into our hearts by his spirit. He'll come in by his grace and overpower the things that once dominated and consumed us and recreate and restore us. Now, hearing some of the memories I have of my CPE course, you might think that it was all doom and gloom or all difficulties, but... The truth was, in the midst of my visits, I actually got to lead people to Jesus. There was an openness amongst some of them as they were dying to hear the gospel. I got to help them to understand God's grace when they had spent a life seeking to earn God's favor. And I got to bring comfort to the dying, reorienting a person's life even as it was ending. You see, it's never too late to start living. So are you busy living or busy dying? Are you busy living or busy dying. Some of us today need to ask God to recreate us, to restore us by his spirit. We have reached rock bottom or in a barren place in our relationship with him due to disobedience or maybe apathy or laziness. And we need to turn towards him and confess that we've filled ourselves with all the wrong things and we've become stubborn in our hearts. In fact, our very wills need to be cleansed. And whether we knew him once or whether we've never truly known him, we need to come to him in repentance and ask forgiveness for our sin, to kneel at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to enter our heart by his spirit today. One person who did this and was never the same again was the Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Perhaps you have read War and Peace, well done if you did, <laughs> or the slightly shorter Anna Karenina. Um, but he speaks of his conversion experience like this. You may not realize he's a Christian. And he speaks of his filling with the Ruach of God. He said this, Five years ago, I came to believe in Christ's teachings, and my life suddenly changed. I ceased to desire what I had previously desired and began to desire what I formerly did not want. What had previously seemed to me good seemed evil, and what seemed evil seemed good. It happened to me as it happens to a man who goes out on some business and suddenly decides that the business is unnecessary and returns home. All that was on his right is now on his left, and all that was on his left is now on his right. His former wish to get as far as possible from home has changed into a wish to be as near as possible to it. The direction of my life and my desires became different, and a good and evil, and good and evil changed places. See, Tolstoy got busy living. He got busy living. 
Now, as you hear these words, maybe God's spirit is stirring within you today. If so, I want you to pray with me in a moment and then tell me after the service that you did it. I'd love to hear about that. And if you're someone who's already been filled with the Ruach of God, someone who's already busy living, who do you know who needs to hear this message? Who is that person in your life? Who could you tell about Jesus? Who could you invite to church on Palm Sunday or Easter? Who could you invite into your life group or perhaps to Theology on Tap? You see, we all know people who are busy dying. So let's help them to see what it means to get busy living. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, Ruach of God, come right now. Would you breathe afresh through your people today, where people feel like dry bones, whether they have never experienced your Spirit's power within them, or whether they have experienced it but are feeling at a low ebb right now. Would you come and restore them and recreate them, Lord Jesus? Make them a new person in you. Give them the power, give them the hope that your spirit brings, that they might truly live and not be dying anymore, but truly alive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.